is expecting you. Hello! Welcome to Thoughts from Aunt Wu, Mako's Logbook Edition, the Legend of Korra podcast where we know the future. Today we will be discussing Book 1, Episode 3, The Revelation. Today I am joined by no one. I am all alone. I'll be doing this podcast on my own. Unfortunately, Corey could not join us, neither could Charles, so that's okay. We'll be going through this one. Uh, As a result, things might be a little shorter, although I have been known to go off on my own tangents for sure. So yes, today we are discussing The Revelation, the third episode here of The Legend of Korra. And as always, we'll be starting with initial thoughts, so I suppose I will be giving my initial thoughts. Um, I really like this episode. It's it's really good. It's kind of the true introduction to Amon and the main plot that is this uh, book one. And in many ways, the, especially the beginning of book one, kind of goes between episodes about the pro-bending stuff and then the episodes about um, Amon and the Equalists. And, you know, with episode two being kind of the introduction to pro-bending and here now episode three being the introduction to the Equalists, I like a lot about this. And in many ways, I, I think this episode sets them up in, in, in a great way. Amon is a really cool villain, at least at first. And watching this episode, I, I really do have my real reservations that come with how much I don't like the final choices that they make when it comes to Amon's origin and, and, and who he actually is. Um, and I'm sort of loath to go into our style where we know the future and we know who Amon actually is because at first this episode's really, really good. It, it has a great tone to it, a great sense of foreboding that there is something important going to happen. You get this really cool introduction to Oman as a character just coming up through the from the floor, his voice, his mask, the story he tells, and then eventually the revelation, the the, the seeing that he has this power is, is so is so cool. And, you know, I, I really would I really want to love Amon. I want to think of him as this great villain, but unfortunately I just can't because I'm everything about this episode is kind of made irrelevant by the ending so there's really no two ways about this is going to be a weird one where i'm going to say a lot of positive things about the episode except many of those positive things are unfortunately invalidated and it's it is very sad and it does does show that if you're going to make a a series that is this built on a villain especially a singular villain in book one in oman if that villain isn't great if you aren't fully willing to commit you're just you're doing yourself and your and your audience a disservice. So, going in now into the into the episode discussion itself and sort of going going through the episode, um, you know, for the most part, it's a pretty standard story. You know, you start with um, Korra, Mako, and Bolin in in the um, pro bending arena. They're doing their training. We get some initial um, understanding of who Mako and Bolin are and kind of the real introduction to their characters of who they are. And, you know, right off the bat, I think, you know, I talked a little bit in our in our initial episode, uh, in our episode last week about um, Mako and how, you know, Ma- I don't particularly like Mako. And I sort of said, like, well, Mako is kind of all of the bad parts of Zuko without any of the good parts. And I still really stand by that statement as I think that, Mako is trying to be a similar character to that. He is sort of has the same, has issues with, you know, with his upbringing. Well, it's a different issue than exactly Zuko had. It's still issues nonetheless, and is the sort of brooding firebender that Zuko always was. However, with that said, 
there is another character who has a very similar life um, story to Mako. And it's not Zuko, but it's Katara, which is fascinating to me because when you look at book one, and book one was initially supposed to be the only the only book to this story. It was originally supposed to be just a little one-season one-shot. And Mako and Korra were going to be together for that case. And, and you know, obviously, we'll, we can talk at length about where this eventually goes and, and how much Mako and Korra is, ends up being not endgame at all. But considering that that is the plan right now, it's sort of fascinating because at first, the, the obvious thing to say would be, well, Mako and Korra is the spiritual successor to um, Zutara. You have the brooding firebender. You have the somewhat, at times, hot-headed waterbender girl. You put them together opposites attract all that jazz and yet what's so interesting is how right away you see you give um mako the backstory of katara the one who lost a parent or both of their parents in mako's case um and was forced to take care of their sibling now yes katara was the younger sister while mako is the older brother but at its core it's the same thing we hear from Sokka and, and even katara that you know katara was came in stepped up and kept her family from falling apart and in this case you see that mako has been the one taking care of bolin for a long time and that is going to lead to some similarities fundamentally katara is going always was and always will be motherly she will always see it as her role her job to take care of the people around her and for ang that was really great ang needed a certain amount of saving and needed someone to take care of him and i'm not again i'm not fully going into well okay he was his mom i don't actually think that's true i think that that's a very surface level reading but at its core ang was going to crave as someone who never a never had a family and has really lost the support structure of of uh, of a family and of of the air nation katara can come in and be and very much be that support system and it's interesting to me that you go in we sort of we go into this and Obviously, you want to re- recreate Zutara, but you then put in this very big sort of Katara and Aang thing. And yet, paradoxically, because Korra is a completely different avatar to Aang, it's totally and completely different. And it leads to why this relationship was never going to work and eventually doesn't work. Because Korra, the last thing that Korra needs is a sort of, I'm not going to say motherly, because you know, Mako isn't exactly motherly, but last thing she needs is, is, a, is a parent. The last thing she needs is someone who sees it as their responsibility to take care of. Korra is a lot more strong-willed, and more importantly, Korra has lived her life with an abundance of people who have felt that that felt their need to take care of her. She has her actual parents. She has everyone within the White Lotus, including Tenzin and, and Katara. So she is desperate to get away from that. She's desperate to make her own choices, make her own decisions. And while this episode is centered entirely on Mako and Bolin, and Mako sort of dealing with the the decisions that Bolin makes and you know showing that he is going to clean up his messes because that's what an older brother in this case does that's always going to be who Mako is and that's never going to work for Korra and I really am it's fascinating seeing it right here that like right from the start I mean this really is the sort of very beginning of the of these two people getting to know each other this very obvious thing that was meant to be like okay we're recreating Zutara but also there's going to be that little bit of Katara and Aang because that was what we created and yet in both cases 
it completely falls apart. And that to me is kind of, I, I find really interesting. And, and, you know, something I'll say here that I'll, I'll talk about a little bit throughout this episode. I mean, I, when I initially watched the show, I could not stand Makora. I could not stand Mako as a whole. And I still don't like it. But now that Makora is not Endgame, now that we can see that this was never actually going to work out, I've softened on the sort of watching these parts. I still don't like their relationship. I'm never going to like their relationship. But I now find it almost okay that I don't like their relationship. Maybe I'm not supposed to like their relationship. You people get into bad relationships. I've been in in a bad relationship. That's what happens. That's what life is like. And essentially to see just how uncompatible these two people are, even from, from the start, actually makes it a little bit more acceptable to me that we're going to see them have this really awful uh, teen romance that, you know, many people consider the downfall of the show. So, you know, to kind of be my example of this sort of big, quote unquote, big disclaimer for this episode, you know, I almost think that the, the bad teen romance, while it was definitely not intended to be bad, at some point you can just look at it and say, you know what, it's bad because Mako and Kor were never supposed to be together. They tried, as teenagers do, and then they realized it didn't work and they moved on. And that ended up being really good for both the show and, in general, for for everything. So I'm almost happy that things are, right off the start, as bad as they are, because it makes it a lot more reasonable that this thing completely falls apart uh, as as it goes. Um, little bits of world building. I really love the names of, of the gangsters, the names of, of the, the triads. Um, you know, Shady Shin, Lightning Bolt, Zolt, uh, the Triple Threats, the Agni Kai's. There's something really, um, no, it's just it's just funny, but I, it's it's a nice little good bit of both Avatar humor, a little bit of in in jokes within you know referencing things from the past, but also you know not the craziest thing in the world. I mean, the fundamentally you know there are plenty of gangster movies with really ridiculous names, and you know this kind of harkens to that, and you know to again to be sort of have that 1920s 1930s aesthetic and to sort of go into those gang into you know classic gangster movies i really like it it's 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 just kind of fun um and now another really important subtle thing that i love here is we get to see the power plant that mako gets to have some work at and it's really just like a, a 10 second shot of him shooting lightning into into a power plant but i really think it's a very important scene for this story for one it's nice to know that the technology that is coming out of this world is still somewhat built upon the foundation of bending. Um, you know, yes, obviously the, uh, there we know that a steam engine exists. There were steam engines in um, the um, in the last Airbender, so it's not like we don't have. We're you know this technology is this huge leap forward, but the fact that there are ways to generate lightning just through someone's body it makes sense that that would be something that could theoretically be used for power. Now, obviously, lightning bending in the original series was sort of reserved for, you know, really just Azula, um, Ozai, and and Iroh, so it was sort of a a very uncommon technique, and we do see through um, Kyoshi that the idea of lightning bending was very special. But the fact is, we, throughout Korra, we've seen that many of these sort of the demo- many much ways the democratization of bending. I mean, like metal bending went from something that Toph knew how to do to a pretty common thing among earthbenders, and it's sort of the same thing with lightning bending. Yes, and now I know some people have complained about this, and you know, so lightning bending is not quite as special as it used to be. And you know what? That's true. It is a little bit, um, 
you know, it definitely has lost its sheen. But the fact is, Lightning Lightning was never going to be as special as it was back in the original series. It was reserved for two, you know, two and a half. I mean, Iroh essentially does it once, specific characters. And the fact is, it was never going to be as special as that. So getting to see it, you know, more often here, I think is was inevitable, and, and I'm okay with that. The other major part of this scene that I think is important is fundamentally the story of book one is an economic story. You have an, a society between vendors and non-vendors that is not economically equal because some people have magical powers and some people don't. And on a purely economic level, this is a problem because as you can see right here, there are jobs that non-vendors cannot do. There's no way that a non-bender can get hired at a power plant to generate lightning. It is literally not in their physical ability. That becomes a problem. That is an issue because there's no, it's not simply you haven't, don't have the skills. It's not you haven't learned something. We can, we understand that in many societies, there are positions and jobs that only certain people with certain skills can have, but those skills can be acquired. Fundamentally, Anyone with the ability to bend lightning can go and get this job, and that's an unfair economy. And for Amon to be able to seize on that, to seize on economic angst that would come from non-benders who see their lives as significantly more difficult because they do not have access to these magical powers. And since we, you know, it's not, I think we can infer from this that this is not the only kind of thing that benders have that are, are jobs. We can totally understand that there are probably construction jobs specifically for earthbenders because many bits of construction are building with earth, which you know locks out a large portion of the of the working populace from that from those jobs, and that is a problem. And if that's what this entire series or this entire book is going to be about, getting little moments like this this is, this goes back to something we talked about a lot throughout the original that was subtle storytelling little bits little scenes that have dual purposes yes and at its core this scene is just supposed to be mako going out and earning some money and getting to see the dichotomy where mako goes and finds legitimate work while bolin has this crazy idea to have pabu do uh circus tricks and then eventually joins up with a with a with a gang and you know just doing security work and gets himself in a in, in a mess sure on you know on the surface that's the more the first purpose but I think that the secondary purpose is, is showing us that, yes, this economy is not equal and is never going to be equal or unless it is addressed. And we can address it through legislation and policy and ways to try to make things more fair, or we can address it violently, which is a mon solution. And, you know, remember, we go from the equalists where this, you know, this one guy screaming, that's all we've heard about, to this massive rally, this, you know, what seems like thousands of people, it's important for us to understand that there is a real point here. This isn't just Amon's family was killed by a firebender. It's there is a very real and, and palpable sense of economic anxiety among non-benders. And I, I get that. I think that that's really, really good. Um, we get to see kind of our first big fight of this series. I mean, we had a little bit in, in, in pro bending, but that was not really a, a true fight. It was, you know, a sporting event. And the cheap blockers against um, Korra and Mako are really, really good. There's some really great, great stuff in here. I mean, right off the bat, I I think that it 
it's nice that they both incorporate the new technology. You're getting to see bending going up against motorcycles and and cars, which is really, you know, which is cool. And I like that in many ways the technology does pretty well against the bending. It makes sense that within this universe, if you were building, you know, this, this type of technology, you would think about, well, okay, someone can manipulate the earth underneath a car so we should build them in such a way that they can deal with that kind of thing i think that that's really i think that was important and again totally makes sense for the for the universe also they do a good job of of making both the chi blockers look from a movement perspective like tai lee and adding in that sort of trademark uh punching sound that tai lee had when she was doing chi blocking giving us the sense that we know very quickly what's going on here, that these people are using that technique. And when Korra, you know, loses her bending and sort of is is totally confused and Mako is just like, well, oh, those are chi blockers. That's what they do. You know, that's information that we had had. And I think that, again, it's, a, it's an important bit of that subtle storytelling of letting us know that, oh, yeah, this is something we knew existed. They didn't just make this up. This is something we saw from the original series as, as sort of the signature of a character in Tai Lee. And it makes sense that that sort of type of fighting would have, there would be some roots in that, that, you know, clearly Tai Lee was trained in chi blocking somehow. So it makes sense that they have probably learned from at least a similar lineage. Um... We get to see, you know, the the beginnings of Mako and, and Korra's relationship, so to speak. And I'm not going to spend much time. And I, I spent some time in the intro um, talking about it. Um, not exactly sure. I, I needed a meet cute with them of them. Oh no, they fell asleep on each other. Um, you know, not not exactly subtle guys. And it, you know, it's very clear that this, you know, this was what they were going for from you know from day one with 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 book one was Mako and Korra, and, and there was just no way around that. Um, once we get inside the um, arena or whatever we want to call it for the revelation, um, you know, really they are leaning into this steampunk aesthetic. It, it has not just you know both the the look from a technology standpoint, but just the the lighting, the way it you know the the gray kind of washed out colors, the clothes that Mako and Korra are wearing with that you know scarf as the sort of sole bit of color between them. It just really fits what we're going for here and I and I like that they that they commit to a style. They commit to this is this is what this book was going was going to be and, and they're they're strong with that. And I think that that's really really great. Um, and look, as I mentioned a little bit in my intro, Aman is so damn cool. He's so awesome. His his presence, the way he moves, the way his voice works with the mask on and you know that initial that entrance he has where he comes up with the flank by them and and has the uh benders in you know in chains it's just it's so cool it's a really great you know well-crafted shot but it's also like well-crafted stagecraft for for someone who's trying to um engender this support from a crowd he definitely knows how to play a crowd so i've always found this really interesting now that we you know once you know what Amon is that that everything Amon says about this story of the fire nation of a firebender killing his his family is a lie. He made it up, which allows us to actually kind of dissect why he chooses this particular story. And I think it's interesting because it really does give us some insight into what the state of the world is coming out of 
the last airbender. I mean, the final scene of that series, or I guess the second to last scene in that series, is the end of the Hundred Years' War, the end of this conflict in which the Fire Nation were the primary antagonist for most people on Earth. And you are in this parish of Republic City, which is technically on former Earth Kingdom lands. We know from the comics that the Earth Kingdom was not exactly thrilled about this, and we'll see it later on with Kuvira, that the that the Republic City, the fact that this land was sort of taken by Zuko and, and Aang and sort of made into something new was maybe not exactly popular with the Earth Kingdom. And you kind of get a sense here that there are a lot of people who are probably in this city who ended up here on some level because of the displacement that came with the war. That they, they after the war ended, they realized I'm going to go to Republic City, this new you know this new city to potentially start strike a new life. It makes sense that the Fire Nation is, or or a Firebender would play onto the fears of you know some of the underbelly of the city that 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 Firebenders are sort of still somewhat feared because the world has not completely healed from this you know borderline apocalyptic event that was the hundred years war and was so is in azulon and ozai and i think it's it's telling that amon chooses a firebender in a rural farm somewhere as his sort of incident for why benders are evil which again i really think is him trying to tap into some latent fear about well the fire nation did this the fire you know and he will later say that you know bending has been the cause of all wars well the one war that people have somewhat fresh in you know not fresh in their own but they have there is a uh, certainly a connection to is is the war that you know the war that was the entire plot of the original series and i mean I think that there's also something for us as, you know, from a non-dietetic perspective, for us as viewers to understand that, like, yeah, we know, we think of firebenders as the quote-unquote evil ones. Um, but I think, again, for purely looking at it as stagecraft, as Amon is trying to, to, to design the perfect story, I think it's telling to us that he's choosing a firebender and not something else on the other side. The other thing that's sort of interesting that, again, goes back to, like, my anger about where Amon goes, Amon oh, you know, starts his speech with talking about how the spirits have gifted him this power. And at first you're kind of like, well, that seems a little weird. Amon is kind of seems like a bad guy. The spirits probably wouldn't do that. But the more you dig into the spirits and the relationship that humans have with the spirit world, I mean, it's actually not all that crazy. There's a lot of spirits who really don't like humans and don't like benders. And I don't think that it's actually all that crazy to think that this might have happened, that a spirit might have actually given Amon energy bending and allowed him to to do this thing. And again, I'm really like thinking through the like what this would look like if they had committed if they had made Amon genuine and actually given him this power I kind of think that like there would be something really cool if Amon was working with some spirits and especially considering the next book is going to all be about an evil dude working with some spirits like 
I think that there's kind of a weird way that, like, you could have combined Amon and um, sort of Vatu and and Unalak with sort of combining the, the sort of some of the themes of book one with some of the themes of book two and really created something, like, really great in a, on its own. Um, but unfortunately, each one kind of is missing that other piece that would have been really, really great. Like, Amon actually has a pretty legitimate point about the state of the world, and it's sort of using a power that would be kind of, um, would make sense with the spirits, while Unalak, it just kind of is working with the spirits, but doesn't really have the, the same, you know, well-crafted motivation, or fake motivation in this case, that, that was present with Amon. So I really think that this is this weird world where you could combine these two villains and like combine books one and two a little bit and make this into something really special, but unfortunately that didn't happen. Um, it is a nice touch that he uses the sort of the same pose, you know, that we've seen with Aang, you know, grabbing of the forehead. You know, he's clearly trying to make it clear that this is that this is a, a, a spiritual thing, that there's sort of a, almost a religious element to it, and that's that's really important. Um, but yeah, I mean, Amon is Amon is really awesome. Um, you know, then you know we get the sort of escape. You know, Korra has uh, the little fight with the. Sort of security guard, I guess, and and eventually they they're able to add the steam. Um, I like Amon's last little line though. That's sort of like let you know let the Avatar go. She'll be the perfect messenger of 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 their what what they've seen. And I think that's really good and important. And I think that they do a good job of again like making Amon is clearly very good at the public display um, of the public performance that is leading a revolution. That leading a revolution is about winning the public over, and he un- really understands the way these things work, and understands that obviously Korra is going to immediately, you know, tell Tenzin and sort of feel the need to get involved in this kind of thing. And the fact is, Amon wants a public confrontation confrontation with the Avatar. He wants the sort of legitimacy of, you know, the the ultimate symbol of bending the avatar to be you know to be against him because that allows him to sort of really make this into not you know while this was always going to be about economics it's important for him to then add in all of this other sort of faith and spirituality side because that will turn people from sympathetic to your cause to completely devout and devoted to your cause and i think they do a great job of really showing us that aman Mun knows what he's doing. He has planned this. He is not just sort of making this stuff up. He has a very clear plan and understands that, you know, having Cora, Cora at this point is actually knowing is an asset rather than let's chase her down and, and potentially stop her. That, that nothing is good is going to come with that. Um. So yeah, I mean, fundamentally, this is a really, it's a really good episode. It's a really well. Craft and it's sort of if you look at the first three episodes, sort of the introduction to the series, the introduction to pro bending, and now the introduction to um, the equalist and then Amon. Each of these do are incredibly effective at doing that, at getting us in the right mindset for these things. Unfortunately, this ends up being the worst one because the introduction to the series is great because I love the series and I love Korra. The introduction to pro bending is great because in the end, I really do like pro bending. The problem is, in the end, Amon ends up being really boring because everything that I just said, all of the cool stuff about Amon, all of that, you know, that this would be great if he if he actually was endowed by the spirits, 
turns out to be a lie. He's just a guy who wants some power. It's a letdown. And that's just the way it is. And I think this is the first this is the first episode now in the series that I, I have to sort of really dock some points for I don't think that they really committed to what the series was supposed to be. A story of Korra against incredibly strong and interesting villains. They figured it out finally in, in, in book three, but it just wasn't here yet. So, you know, I that's gonna kind of be my final thoughts and you know my rating for this. It's still really good. I still really enjoyed the episode, but rather than it being in sort of the top tier that I had put the last two episodes, I'm going to have to dock some points. I'm going to give this a 7.3 out of 10. Still formally, squarely in the very good category, but the fact of the matter is, because Amon is a disappointment, that was always, that's just the way it is. You can't, when your episode's about a villain and in the end I don't like the villain, that's what's going to happen. So thank you guys for for tuning in. We shall be back with uh, episode four. Some new characters might be joining us soon, characters that I miss greatly. So look forward uh, to that. And, you know, because remember, book one is only 14 episodes. We are very quickly moving into the middle of the of book one. It's not, you know, things things get uh, get going a little faster than they did back in the original series. So we're steaming on ahead. So thank you guys again, and I'll uh, see you next week.